Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, David Kay, is the UN Special Rapporteur on Freedom of Opinion and Expression. He has held this position since 2014, which has given him a unique vantage point and a unique platform to monitor trends in the suppression of free speech. In a new report to the UN Human Rights Council, David Kay identifies and explains the ways in which governments and other entities have used the coronavirus pandemic to crack down on the freedom of expression, independent media, and access to information. Among other things, this includes invoking laws to punish, quote, fake news and broad internet shutdowns. And we discuss this all and more. And just some brief background, UN Special Rapporteurs are independent experts selected by the Human Rights Council and the High Commissioner for Human Rights to monitor and report on specific human rights issues. They serve for defined terms before their mandate ends, and in fact, the report that David Kay references in this episode was his final report to the UN Human Rights Council. I'll post a link to it on globaldispatchespodcast.com and on undispatch.com. And just a quick note before we start, uh, if there are topics you're interested in having me cover or people you'd think I should interview, please do send me an email. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I love hearing from you. I, I do this podcast for you. Uh, the listener, you as an individual who are listening. So if you have suggestions for me, please do let me know. If anything else is on your mind, please do feel free to share. Thank you. All right. Now here is my conversation with David Kay, UN Special Rapporteur on the Freedom of Opinion and Expression. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we've seen over, over the last few months, I mean, really from the time that, that the coronavirus emerged in China, was just how much of an intersection it presented between free expression, access to information, access to the internet, and so forth, and public health. And, you know, it seemed from early on that the, um, you know, that the, the public health threat was exacerbated by repression of, of speech. And, and we saw that from the earliest days in Wuhan when people, doctors, others were trying to get the word out about, uh, about the virus. Uh, they were, 
you know, they were repressed. Their speech was repressed. Their, their posts on WeChat were, uh, were deleted. So, I, I mean, I think, very, and, and that's just translated across the globe into all sorts of other places. And so I think it's fair to talk about the, the crisis of public health as one also of, of free expression and access to information. And it seems that the crisis was at least exacerbated in some places by countries and governments imposing new laws pegged to the pandemic to sort of regulate speech in new and different ways. Is that fair? Yeah, I think that's true. Although, you know, because law moves so slowly, I think what we've seen more than new laws, although we have seen new laws, I mean, for example, uh, South Africa adopted, you know, pretty quickly some legislation that focused on, uh, you know, disinformation around the coronavirus and imposed, you know, criminal penalties on that kind of disinformation. That I mean, that is an example of that. But I think more common has been a kind of um, use of existing laws. And there's a patchwork of false information laws around the world that are being used in order to, um, you know, to suppress criticism of government and, and, and to suppress information about, uh, about the coronavirus. Like what would be an example of a government using a pre-existing law to suppress critical information about the, or information critical of the government pertaining mm-hmm. to its response to COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, so one example is Egypt, which has had uh, it's had on the books for many, many years. I mean, <laughs> predating the uh, you know the, the fake news term uh, by by decades, uh, they've had law that prohibits the dissemination of false information, and they've they've deployed that against journalists uh, over the last several months, in particular um, against. Uh, against foreign journalists who are reporting about the outbreak in Egypt. Um, I mean, there are other examples. There's um, in Malaysia, we've had similar kinds of, uh, of use of existing law. And, um, you know, it's, uh, to me, what it, it suggests in a, in a real ironic way, in many respects, is how, you know, governments for the last several years have been ramping up their implementation of these false information laws. In part, they've been doing so at the kind of encouragement of, of governments like the United States, which has you know, used the fake news term to such serious effect. Um, but we've seen, and I, I, I mean, I'd kind of been hoping at the outset of the, uh, of the pandemic that people would see it this way, that the disinformation laws can have a real effect a real negative effect on people's lives. And here that's, you know, a real effect on, on public health. And, and so, you know, these, these laws that are out there that have been existing in existence for, for so long are now tools of, of repressing really important information. In terms of, of these disinformation laws, I mean, is there in your view, any um, justification that could be, you know, thought of theoretically um, for having a kind of disinformation law. I mean, right now mm-hmm. it seems like there is probably no more critical time for having a disinformation law. Like you don't want, um, 
you know, people spreading rumors about, you know, how to cure COVID from, I don't know, drinking bleach or something like that. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. Um, but, but one of the things that I found really interesting when I started to do research into to my most recent report, you know, that really focuses on this issue was, um, you know, I found this document that the WHO, the World Health Organization, had uh, had published in 2018 called uh, Managing Epidemics. I think it's called Managing Epidemics. And, you know, the really interesting thing about this document was that it it frames the importance of communication and a communication strategy as sort of on a par with medical and scientific advancement. In other words, it was suggesting that governments need to be um, providing accurate information to the public and they need to be providing a kind of, what they call it is risk communication in order to deal with I think what you're describing, which is what they've called the infodemic, you know, the rise of disinformation that is that runs in parallel to the disease pandemic. And and the thing that I, I took from the WHO's reporting was that I found really interesting was the importance of governments um, communicating with the public and also listening to the public and listening to the concerns and also to the you know the conspiracy theories, the um, the rumors, the gossip that is out there, and and the sense now the WHO doesn't frame it this way, but but my takeaway was, you know, the more that you suppress that kind of information as a matter of you know of criminalization, for example, which is what a lot of disinformation laws ultimately do, they they penalize you for you know, for disinf- you know, for disseminating disinformation. One of the takeaways that I had was that it's important for governments to listen to, to these, to the rumors and to correct them. And that the, the effect of, of penalty would not be to end the rumors, but it would be to push them underground so that government couldn't see them and would be, it would be much harder for them to be corrected. So I think there's there's actually an instrumental reason apart from the you know the more democratic reasons for uh, for free expression there's a instrumental reason for governments to be avoiding disinformation laws and to be promoting access to information uh, correction of disinformation and so forth. It's like that old saying the was the antidote to uh, dangerous speech is more speech. I think that's right although I, I, I don't really subscribe to the idea that, you know, all speech can be answered with more speech. It's in, instead, it's more that the answer to, to problematic speech or to speech with which maybe the government disagrees is not to shut it down, but to engage with it. Um, and, and, and that kind of engagement can create a kind of trust. In, in government, in government officials, in public institutions. And that's, that's the kind of, um, of support that government should be engaging in at a time when people are, I mean, I'm sure you and I are the same, like people around the world, we're really eager to have you know, accurate information and we're really eager to have guidance from public authorities. And to the extent that, that the sharing of information is, is criminalized, to a, a significant part of the 
population, I think that undermines the kind of trust that you need to deal with the disease. Have you seen governments uh, around the world, or could you cite an example of a government that is handling this this in the way that you just described, that's doing kind of a good job of dispelling disinformation and inspiring confidence among its people? Yeah, I, I think actually a good, interesting example is Germany, um, you know, where Angela Merkel, the chancellor, has, I think, spoken to to the public in very articulate, um, you know, even scientific-oriented ways that has, has basically sent the message to the public that, um, you know, I trust you, you're adults, you can make decisions uh, about, about public health, about your own personal health, about safety um, in a way that doesn't require us to criminalize um, rumors, but allows you to, to take the information process it and do something with it. And what's interesting about Germany is that they they do have, and over the weekend I saw reports that there were, you know, anti-lockdown protests. I mean, those things are still taking place and those are those are problematic from a public health perspective, but but the government isn't shutting them down. And and you know, to the contrary, Germany is taking steps to that are quite innovative in many respects to deal with the pandemic while also communicating that you know there's a level of risk you need to be mindful of. I mean I would also say that the kind of language you hear from Governor Cuomo in New York or Governor Newsom in California has been you know they have not been talking down to uh, to the population they've been, you know, they've been saying that this is a problem. We don't have all the answers. We need to take precautions. I mean, that kind of discourse, I think, is it, it enables people to share information and to discuss the problem without the fear of being um, of being penalized for for sharing something that turns out to be false. And you know, and there's one other thing I should just mention that you know, none of this suggests that governments. Um, can uh, should avoid prosecuting people for um, for fraud. I mean, you mentioned you know bleach as a as a cure. If there are people out there who are pushing, peddling, you know, hucksters who are peddling this kind of information, they can still be prosecuted under consumer protection laws. And that you know that is a form of dealing with um, you know with expression with disinformation. But that's different from talking about the kind of disinformation. That, that many governments are trying to tackle. Um, one thing about this moment has, has really crystallized the intricate relationship between the internet and the freedom of expression. You know, we're all at home. Uh, you know, mass protests don't happen uh, as often as they used to uh, because of this unique moment in history. We are all now all relying on the internet more than ever. Um, what has this moment revealed in terms of trends in how government is restricting or perhaps enabling uh, the use of and access to the internet in places around mm. the world? Yeah. I mean, it really has been a moment that that highlights how important internet access has become. And, you know, it's it's an unusual moment. But it's also a moment that's probably going to persist for for some time, and and it just emphasizes, I think, um, the government responsibility to ensure that people have 
have adequate access to the internet. And I think one of the one of the best bad examples is what's what's happening in Kashmir in in India. I mean, the the Indian government has continued, and this has been in a, you know happening since last August when the when the government imposed a communications blackout on Kashmir. And they've persisted, um, even though they started to open up some slower internet access over recent months. Um, they've they've fallen back. There's been a lot of backpedaling, and it's very difficult for people in Kashmir to get information about the coronavirus. And that goes to to public health authorities, to doctors and nurses and hospital staff, and. And I think that that's... So like if you're a doctor in Kashmir and you're just trying to access the World Health Organization's website to, or some other scientific website about, you know, best treatments and best practices, your internet is is um, just at going at a snail's pace if you're able to access it at all. Yeah, exactly. I mean, imagine trying to download this, you know, this WHO document on managing epidemics. It's, you know, it's a big document. It, you know, it could take... Um, it could take hours if you can get it at all. And the, and, you know, you, you sort of compound that with the problem, not just of accessing that kind of information that helps guide public health officials, but it makes it very hard for, for ordinary people. I mean, people who are not in public health to communicate about what they're seeing in their neighborhoods, um, to share what they're, what they're perceiving, what they're experiencing, all of that you know, in addition to the, you know, the transborder, the cross-border kinds of communication that, that the internet allows, it's, it's been, um, it's been really seriously repressive. I mean, back in August, it was seen, I mean, I saw it as a kind of, um, you know, draconian form of collective punishment for Kashmiri protest against, you know, what, what India was doing in, in Kashmir. Now it's a public health threat. And, and I think it, what what it does is, I mean, I think for for many people it should highlight just how important internet access has become. I mean, we there was a, I think many people in the human rights field were reluctant for many years to say that access to the inner internet was a human right, but it's really difficult to say today that access to the internet is you know is not intricately intertwined with. A variety of other rights, whether they're free expression or the right to health, the right to housing. Um, it's and and you know we could go on. It's just I think the moment has really shown us how important these rights are and how interlinked they are. Have you seen um, a like increase in the number of internet or the pace, I should say, of internet blockages or slowdowns or shutdowns since COVID? Or is it all kind of ha- still happening, but the effects are much worse? I, I, I'm i guessing, I, I mean, I really haven't run the numbers on that. I'm guessing it's more the latter that that the effect, because, you know, there's been very little change. I mean, my, my hope would have been that that governments would have, Acknowledge the moment, acknowledge the importance of access to information and access to the internet as part of that, and said, notwithstanding, you know, the security threats that we we think are out there, we're going to make access easier because you know people need need that information in order to make decisions 
about about their own health and about public health. And most governments have simply not done that. I mean, if anything, they've they've made it worse. And I mean, there's there are examples out there. I mean, perhaps you know, in terms of uh, you know the democratic world, the most uh, sort of um, you know the starkest example is in Hungary, where you know the government of Viktor Orban has really gone in the opposite direction of of providing access. Now there aren't internet shutdowns, but there's state media. There is restriction on um, what people can report, basically, and publish. There's there's been a kind of you know in part because of the the disinformation. Uh, environment in Hungary. I mean, the environment in which there's so much repression against criticism of government that, you know, fair, open debate about what government is doing in response to the coronavirus has been, you know, very seriously repressed in the country. And, and that's, that's something, you know, close to home for us, but it's also something that we're seeing around the world. So one thing that I've sort of gleaned from interviewing a number of people in the human rights field since the start of this pandemic is that, you know, and actually this this includes an episode I did not long ago about uh, democratic backsliding and authoritarianism that, that referenced specifically Viktor Orban. Uh, but what I have heard from people I've interviewed is that in general, this moment is accelerating trends that were present before the crisis. Um, you know, there hasn't been sort of much new revealed about the world so much as everything that was sort of trending in a negative direction in terms of human rights prior to the crisis is still trending that direction, uh, but happening quicker. Mm -hmm. I mean, is that something you've seen in the freedom of expression realm? Yeah, absolutely. I I'm not sure if I would say accelerating as much as reinforcing and um, and 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 kind of um, deepening the repressive tendencies, but let me put a and there's been a lot of reporting on that, but let me put a a hopeful spin on it. <laughs> um, the the hopeful spin would would be that governments that are that are and, and I would say you know democratic governments that are handling the pandemic with a kind of, um, let's say, a generosity of and an understanding of the fact that people have a lot of fears and that in, an, in a moment when people are fearful, um, there will be gossip and rumors. And governments that are looking at that and, and, and saying, you know, we're not going to repress that, but we're going to, we're going to correct it, we're going to listen, and we are going to act in democratic ways that rely on, you know, on scientific evidence. We're going to highlight the importance of public health authorities and public health measures. We're going to take steps that are respectful of, let's say, the right of public assembly and the right to protest. Um, you know, if if those are the states, and you know, there may there are a million reasons why a, a country might be doing better than another. But if we look at a place like Germany or we look at a place like New Zealand, or, um, or maybe even uh, um, South Korea. You know, when you look at states that have, you know, strong democratic traditions, and they're, they're acting in ways that are, um, that are aggressive with respect to the pandemic, 
but are open with respect to freedom of expression and democratic principles, you know, maybe there will be, there's an opportunity to, to reinforce, you know, the positive aspects and the importance of freedom of expression and, and its connection to, to democratic principles and to other human rights. I mean, I don't, I think that there's a risk of us, you know, falling into the trap of, um, of seeing the deepening repression around the world as a signal of how it has to be in the future. When I think that that there there's a real good case to make for um, for more speech, for more attention um, by governments to to the rumors, to more kind of interaction uh, with citizens about their fears, and that that might be part of the solution rather than the repressive approaches. So it's clear, you know, the way out of this pandemic is through disease surveillance, you know, tracing, you know, contacts and understanding who has been infected, who hasn't, who might potentially have exposed other people. And that will also presumably involve some degree of electronic surveillance as well. Mm -hmm. Um, What should we be worried about in terms of how that um, method of surveillance and the process of, of state surveillance uh, that has, you know, legitimate public health concerns um, for the freedom of expression? Yeah, it's, um, it's a really good question. And I think, you know, what, well, the first thing to say is as a matter of public health, there's um, there's a clear requirement, uh, at least, I mean, I'm not a public health authority, but as far as I can tell from public health authorities, there's a, there's a real consensus around the importance of, of tracing and of what, of what the WHO has in the past called, you know, public health surveillance, public health interventions that enable public authorities to know how the disease is spreading where it's spreading, and therefore, you know, what are the tools that you need in order to address it? There's no question that there has to be some, some level of surveillance. But, but I think there, there are several risks that are, that are built into this, um, you know, into the, the future of surveillance here. So one is that in the process of conducting surveillance, um, government authorities are, um, and we haven't really seen this yet, but it's a risk that they uh, they conduct they collect not only public health required information, but information about one's one's whereabouts, one's connections with others, uh, one's even one's communications, and and if if it ends up that there are some governments that are using public health surveillance as a kind of um, you know, a wedge into surveillance of, of dissidents, surveillance of those who are critical of public health responses. I think, I think if, if governments start to do that, I think they'll see very quickly that, that people will resist contact tracing. They will resist the kind of apps that we've seen starting to be developed. And so it's, it's really important for governments to be absolutely transparent about what it is they're collecting. Um, it's, it's really important that governments um, very much protect the identities of people and the personal data 
that they're collecting when they do this public health surveillance. It's also important that all of this be um, conducted under under law. Um, and I think all of these tools, you know, these tools of, of rule of, of rule of law frameworks to deal with surveillance will build trust in the in the apparatus of public health surveillance that will protect people's um, you know willingness and ability to engage in you know rob- robust debate around these issues. But to the although, extent, yeah, yeah, I would say although although sort of China seems to be providing the opposite example, right? You have you know surveillance and a lot of electronic surveillance, uh, but no one is under the illusion, I think, that they are not also being surveilled for other things. I, I totally agree with that, and um, and but you know I have not seen, for example, how the uh, how the contact tracing and the the public health surveillance is working in the in the far west in Xinjiang, for example. You know, to what extent are are people in the Uyghur community um, re- kind of resisting the surveillance that's important from a public health perspective? But they also know that it goes, it feeds into, you know, the repressive surveillance state. You know, I mean, China has tools that that no democratic country would accept, and um, you know, and you know, people ag- agree to do these things in part because they have no choice. Um, and and I think it's it's still too early to say, you know, who's succeeding and who's not when we look at the different approaches to this around the world. I mean, it's. I mean, the one other thing that the surveillance issue raises that we didn't talk about was how the moment has shown the great power of the private sector in all of this. Whether you know it's you know the the aggressive approach of social media companies to disinformation, or it's the rise of um, you know the private surveillance industry and its offering up of its tools for public health surve- uh, surveillance and interventions. I mean, this is, I think this is one of the things that, that many people will be watching over, you know, they're watching it now and we'll be continuing to watch it. Um, but it really does show that, it, you know, when we talk about freedom of expression and access to information, the, the players involved are not just governments, they're also private actors as well. Uh, Well, David, thank you so much for your time. This was very helpful. Yeah, thanks so much, Mark. I hope it was was interesting. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to David Kay. Uh, He's been on the show a few times, though I suspect this is his final appearance as the UN Special Rapporteur for Freedom of Opinion and Expression. So thank you to David for joining me over the years. And thank you all for listening. All right. We'll see you next time. Bye.